0: Hey everybody, happy June, for those of you who are listening early on, and happy day whenever and wherever you are finding the Main Street Vegan program. I'm Victoria Moran, and I'm so happy that you found us, whether you're a regular or somebody brand new. We have wonderful conversation coming for you today. After the first break, we'll be bringing on Jonathan Balcom, Ph.D., whose new book, is what a fish knows. Hmm. Have you ever wondered that? Well, let me give you a hint. It's way more than a three-second brain. But right now, I'm going to be introducing you to a gentleman who knows a lot about the healthcare system that I am absolutely crazy about. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know this. And that is Ayurveda. Ayurveda is an ancient healing tradition from India, and it is the tradition that we know. Dr. Deepak Chopra, the World Health Organization, says that Ayurveda is a viable health care option right now in 2016, even though its history is thousands of years old. It grew up alongside yoga, so there's a lot of spirituality there and really taking the whole person into account. And Amisha, whom we're going to be speaking with in this segment, actually has Ayurveda in his family. But he was not one of these young hippie types that looked for alternative health opportunities. Instead, he was in the business world, becoming an Inc. 500 entrepreneur and making all sorts of waves out there in the world of commerce and finance. But he had a health scare as a very young man, went back to his roots, and has started ancient health care a company that is spreading awareness for Ayurveda through articles, online courses, herbal supplements, and something I'm very excited about, the ancient healthcare documentary film that will be coming later in this year. Welcome, Amish Shah.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, having me as a guest. And uh, thank you for, for everyone else for tuning in to listen to this.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful topic. I was just telling um, Amish before the show that I am in preparatory week for something called Panchakarma, which is an Ayurvedic Mm -hmm. kind of cleansing, healing thing. But unlike a lot of the cleanses you may be used to, you don't have to stop eating. So that's good. But you sure have to go within and do a lot of other stuff. So it's a very exciting time and a perfect day to be talking with Mr. Shah. So. Amish, tell us your story, because you have a heck of a story.
3: (laughs) Sure. So, uh, it goes back, you know, ever since I was a little kid, to be honest with you. Um, My parents were immigrants from India. They came to America in 1978 or 79, a year later in New Jersey. Uh, so I grew up as uh, an American Indian, I guess you could say, not like the ones with feathers, but, you know, like an American-based uh, Indian from with, with uh, you know, bloodlines from India. And, you know, growing up at home, we wouldn't eat your average American diet, which would be, you know, uh, pasta and burgers and salads and... Uh, some of the normal foods, pizza, some of the normal food that we see, you know, even meat. My parents never ate meat. And so I came to America. Well, I didn't come to America. My parents came to America and everything, as you can imagine, was very kind of new for them, right? Completely culture shock, I guess. And so growing up, I just, you know, I grew up eating uh, meat. I grew up eating um, pretty much everything that I wanted to eat. And from time to time, I would obviously eat the Indian food my parents would make, and I'd see them put all these spices in there and different herbs and all this different stuff. Just it was completely different than what I was used to, just, you know, going to school and things like that. And I was always kind of in touch with it. I didn't really, you know, think too much about it. Uh, I still remember when I would get hurt, let's just say, you know, I fell down or I hurt my knee or I was in basketball or baseball or whatever. They used to put turmeric, you know, they used to make a paste out of turmeric, put it on my knee or my ankle, and it would turn, like, bright orange, and all these kids used to make fun of me. Uh, But I realize now, in hindsight, like, that there was a reason why they used to do things like that, and all these different natural natural remedies that they used to give me at home. Even when I got sick, it was pretty much a lot of uh, remedies, so what happened was, uh, you know, you grow up in, uh, you grow up here and you're taught, you know, uh, make money, make a living, make a lot of money. Uh, at least that's what I was kind of indoctrinated in growing up. You know, uh, my parents would go to school, you know, get a career and, and, you know, do something big with your life. You know, we moved here for an opportunity for you. And so, uh, I did that, and my my focus as a young boy, you know, I was always interested in ancient science and kind of some of the other sciences, but, you know, it a lot of that in the 80s, you know, was just not really accepted, so I I focused my attention on business and computers and technology because that, that was always my passion. Uh, I loved computers. I loved technology. I loved kind of, uh, you know, I guess you could say like hacking and kind of like figuring out ways to do things quicker and going online, I've you know, I've been online since 1997, 96, uh, before the whole kind of dot-com was even really a big thing. And so I took that route, I went to college, I worked for many years, and uh, while I was working I, I quickly realized that, you know, working for someone is not what I want to do in a cubicle all day for the rest of my life, uh, and not that thing I didn't want to do, so I decided to make money, and I said, okay, well, I I just need to make as much as I can make in my job to quit and have a business. Uh, I was 22 years old when I decided to kind of start doing that, 21, 22, and uh, within within my first couple years of kind of experimenting and playing and building websites and trying to make money from them, I started seeing you know, 5 know, $10 a day in extra income, then that turned into 50 then that turned into 100 Before I knew it, it turned into a couple of thousand dollars a day that I was making outside of my work. And so I quit my job and I took on this uh, company full time. And uh, I would say that was the beginning of a lot of <laughs> interesting uh, things that happened to me from there on out. Uh, I started a marketing company. I made my first million dollars by the time I was 25 years old in 2005, and I scaled that company to $5.5 million a year uh, within four years, within three to four years, and uh, it was just a hyper-growth model. I I moved from New Jersey at that point to San Diego, and... um, I brought on a business partner at the time when I moved out here to help grow the company and we did, uh, but quickly making money at a very young age got to me. So I started surrounding myself with things as we like to say, you know, uh, beautiful cars, Ferraris and Maseratis, beautiful mansions in La Jolla overlooking the ocean, it had a pool on the roof, it had an elevator, a theater room, you know, like MTV cribs. Uh, And, you know, private jets and partying, you know, till like, the wee hours of the morning and eating in the middle of the night and smoking cigarettes. And it was uh, very... It was outside of who I really was. I I thought, you know, once you make that money, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what kind of makes you happy at the end of the day was to surround myself with all this stuff and, you know, make a lot of money and and be that person. And... um, I quickly realized I, you know, I was, uh, years of doing that to my body caught up to me. Uh, and I, I was, you know, I had like eczema, kind of like dry skin patches all over my skin. I used to bleed when I used to go to the bathroom and then I went to the doctor and the doctor's like, well, your cholesterol as a 29 year old, I think at the time when he measured it was 350. He said I had a fatty liver, which was about to explode. And he also said I had near adrenal failure, so my kidneys were about to give up on me, basically from all the stress and the toxins I was putting into my body. At the same time, I realized after becoming depressed, suicidal, me and my business partner didn't get along. He was living a very similar lifestyle, and he was actually also going through a divorce And so, uh, both of us were not in the right mindset to even run a company, yet we were making millions of dollars.
0: So, fast forward us to Ayurveda, (laughs) because we don't have a lot of time. This is fascinating, uh, though. I hope it's all going to be in the documentary.
3: Sure, yeah, this is all going to be in the documentary. And so, fast forward, uh, basically, we ended up selling that company. Uh, I wanted to get my life back in order and get healthy, so... Uh, I used, you know, very different methods. You know, I tried everything from juicing to exercising to doing all that stuff. But I still noticed that I had those addictions. And so Ayurveda helped me resolve my addictions, make better habits, um, and incorporate things into my lifestyle rather than just making it feel like a regimen. And I've lost 30 pounds since my cholesterol is normal, my liver is normal, my kidneys are normal. And through this process of panchakarma, like you mentioned earlier, and through this process of healing, I decided to film a documentary, uh, not just about me, but we filmed 29 doctors along the way. All MDs and PhDs around the world that have integrated this ancient science into their modern day practice, because... They realize that the modern, <clears throat> excuse me, that the modern day stuff that they were taught is is maybe doing more harm than actually doing good, and there are no side effects of Ayurveda, uh, you know, unless you're you're mixing it with Western medicine and then pharmaceuticals, uh, and most people don't realize that the number three killer in America is actually doctor error and pharmaceuticals. So there's heart disease, cancer, doctor error, and pharmaceuticals, and then diabetes. So Amazing. our healthcare system is, is very expensive. It doesn't work. It's broken. Sure, for acute problems like heart attacks, you know, aneurysms, and, and breaking a leg or an arm, go to the hospital, of course. But, you know, there's conditions that are chronic that happen every single day. There's these new autoimmune-type diseases that we're, you know, we shrug our shoulders and give people steroids and say maybe it'll go away soon. Mm -hmm. Ayurveda has had answers for these for thousands of years, literally for thousands of years. And it's based on you being in harmony with nature. It's based on you. uh, Once you're out of harmony with nature, it creates imbalances in your body. Those imbalances then turn to disease. And thousands of years ago, they cataloged 9,000 plants and medicinal herbs, albums and recipes for different ailments. And so herbs was just one part of this extensive system. They had psychology, they had surgery, they had um, children, they had gynecology. They had literally thousands of years ago had wrote books on how to do this. And it was not just some guy who wrote it down. It was tested and proven on millions of people. So it's like, here we are in modern day system trying to reinvent the wheel by trying to say, is it scientifically valid? Meanwhile, thousands of years, they've tested on millions of patients. They've documented this all, and we're all about bringing that knowledge to the world. As I started digging in more and more to Ayurveda, I realized that it is the most accurate and most well-documented medical system on the planet, uh, besides our Western system, which, which is still only in its infancy, maybe yes. 60 years old, 70 years old.
0: So Ayurveda goes into so many aspects of how we live. There there's there's diet, mm-hmm. there's like you said herbs. The daily routine absolutely fascinates me. And so what's your favorite part of Ayurveda? What what makes it magical for you?
3: You know, that's a loaded question. <laughs> There's so many magical aspects of it. I guess there's so many amazing components to it. I think the most amazing component to it is that you become subtly aware of your body. So when we have stress among us, uh, and we have you know we're eating these foods that may not necessarily be good for us, and there's pollution, and there's all of this multi-sensory stimulation we receive that creates toxins in our body, and we tend to forget what it is to be living in harmony. With nature, because we're constantly in this mode of go, 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 and we don't really tend to pay attention to it. Ayurveda allows you to understand yourself back at the core of nature. It gives you this subtle understanding of your body, of what's good for your body, what's bad for your body, what you should be taking in for your body, and what you shouldn't be. And it becomes almost a subconscious trigger where you can be like, whoa, I'm not going to eat this because this is what it's going to do to me. And the beauty of that is that now you don't follow fad diets. You know, paleo is not going to work for everybody, you know, and South Beach diet is not going to work for everybody. It may work for some people, but it will never work for everybody. Ayurveda teaches that everything is for somebody and that's unique to you. It's what you your body has to do.
0: And I love the holism of it, that it really does look at at the whole picture and the whole package. And and for me, certainly Mm -hmm. as a vegan, the first thing that wouldn't work about paleo is you can't do it without killing somebody. So for the whole picture, which I was taught in yoga starting at age 17, going to skip that and look for something else. And Ayurveda is certainly a way that I'm finding incredible depth and richness in my life as, as well mm-hmm. as extraordinary mm-hmm. health benefits. So tell us really quickly, we have one minute, tell us about the documentary because I love documentaries sure. and I feel like it's how we're getting this message out about so many good things.
3: <laughs> yes. Uh, as I mentioned, we uh, went around the world for the last two and a half years and filmed 29 different individuals, primarily doctors, MDs and PhDs on the ancient science of Ayurveda, why they've incorporated into their life, how everyday people can incorporate it into their life. And more importantly, we highlight some things that are happening in our modern world that we may or may not be aware of. Uh GMOs and um and the stress and having two devices in front of us at all times and the you know having to go, 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 and what that means for taxing on our body. And so we cover some of, like, the the problems of, you know, why we may not be happy or why we keep getting sick. Uh, And so we address those issues. And then we actually help solve those issues with the different doctors saying Ayurveda can help with all of that stuff and here's how to do it.
0: Love it. So – the, the website is ancienthealthcare.com. You can read about everything that Amish and his colleagues are up to, as well as the ancient healthcare documentary that is in the works. I'll put all of that on the show notes at mainstreetvegan.net. Amish Shah, thank you so much, and to your health. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Everybody else, thank you. Stay with us. We've got Jonathan Balcom coming. What a fish nose.
1: As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. What if you could experience vibrant health? Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller.
0: Walking the Talk, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. Things are about to get very fishy in a very good way. First, a couple of announcements. The Compassion Project, a documentary by filmmaker Thomas Jackson, is in the works and they just put up a GoFundMe page yesterday. And I do invite you to take a look at that. I know that there are a lot of things that you can go fund. This documentary is to reach out to people of faith, any faith, all kinds of faiths around the world who aren't vegan through people of their same religious or spiritual tradition who are vegan. Cool, isn't it? So go to GoFundMe.com slash CompassionMovie. GoFundMe.com slash CompassionMovie, and I'll put that on the show notes as well. I am helping out with the film, and so I get to be called producer. Oh, my gosh, that sounds grand. But it's a really wonderful, wonderful film. Some people you know have already um, agreed to be in it. Uh, Dr. Will Tuttle, Bruce Friedrich, um, Richard Schwartz from Jewish Veg. Um, Wonderful, wonderful folks. So do take a look, and thank you so much for that. The blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net is Vegan Food Bars for Omnivores. And it's written by Michael Suchman, who is half of the Vegan Moe's super blogging team. The Vegan Moe's were in the top 10 male vegan blogs of 2015 from, from Veg News. And in this little post, he shows us how to do pizza bars, taco fajitas bars, and ice cream bars that regular people who eat that kind of thing with animals in them would absolutely eat up and be real happy uh, to consume and to know that it was vegan. So do take a look there, MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. Final announcement, Jason Robel, who wasn't on last week's show, Had a time zone mix-up, and so he will be coming on August 10th. Anybody who was disappointed to Miss Jason, you don't have to be disappointed for too long. And you're absolutely not going to be disappointed at all, starting in about 30 seconds. Because Jonathan Balcombe, Ph.D., is back with us. He is an ethologist. That means he knows all about animals. He's published over 50 scholarly articles and popular books, including Pleasurable Kingdom, Animals and the Nature of Feeling Good, Second Nature, The Inner Lives of Animals, and The Exultant Ark: A Pictorial Tour of Animal Pleasure. What we're going to be talking with Jonathan about today is his brand new book, What a Fish Knows, the Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Welcome, Jonathan.
2: Thanks for having me back, Victoria.
0: It is always a pleasure. So, golly, why fish?
2: Two main reasons for me are that uh, as a scientist I read and see what's published in a lot of the scholarly journals and there's some really fantastic, exciting research going on with fishes. But most of it's buried away in those rarefied journals and the public doesn't generally get access to it. So one reason I wrote the book was to make this information accessible to lay readers. The other reason is that we have a really troubled relationship with the fishes. They're the most exploited group of vertebrates if you put them all together. And um, I hope that by having a more complete and informed view of these very diverse creatures who have been on the earth for over 400 million years and are very highly evolved, that people will um, have, a, have a more, um, well, they'll, they'll want to maybe have a better view of them and that may affect their own relationship with species.
0: I think this is so important because I had some fish experiences in childhood uh, that I think were very important seeds that made me vegetarian and and ultimately vegan. So, of course, at the same time, I was hearing the myth about the old three-second memory. Has that been blown out of the water? And I didn't really mean to be punished in saying that.
2: Indeed, it's been blown out of the water many times over. Uh, for one thing, fishes recognize each other throughout their lives, and those lives can be decades long, depending on which species you're looking at. Most people know, or many people know, that salmons, for instance, they, they return to their native streams. And they do that over hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles, and they do that years after they originally left those streams. So that alone is a is a pretty important kind of memory. Um, but there's also studies of, of fishes in captivity who um, remember an escape route eleven months later, even though they're tiny little creatures. There's a, a frillfin goby who lives in the intertidal zone who was able to memorize tide pool rock pools uh, while they're swimming over them at high tide and then be able to translate that information into the horizontal or orientation at low tide and thereby jump accurately from one tide pool to another in the right direction, the right distance. It's something that we probably would fail at, and yet this, this little five-inch-long fish can do that. And Studies dating back to the 60s, 70s, and even earlier um, found that they learned those tide pools in one trial and they can remember them 40 days later. So they have very good memories.
0: Incredible. And, and they communicate. It, it's fascinating to me. Tell us some fish stories. How do they talk to one another?
2: Yeah, they have different ways of doing that. They, they're actually quite... I don't want to say vocal because they don't have vocal cords the way we do they but they have many ways of generating sound and, and water is a great medium for uh, propagating sound. so they they'll they'll vibrate their swim bladders, they can grind their. They Bones together and teeth together. Grinding bones to make sound doesn't sound very pleasant to us, but uh, they're they're evolved and designed to do that. And uh, but they also have some. They communicate on some bizarre channels, such as uh, electricity. There are some fishes who have evolved in really murky water, and so I guess sound still works, but vision isn't much use. In any event, for whatever reason, they've evolved. Their, their own signatures are based on electrical pulses, and they pulse at different frequencies. And if two fishes, for instance, uh, it could be knife fish or, or elephant nose fish from Africa... The knife fish are from South America. If they swim by each other in their, in their own uh, calls, for want of a better term, their electric, well, they're actually called EODs, electric organ dis- discharges. Aren't you glad you asked? If their um, EODs are similar, they will change the frequency of their own EODs so that they don't get, get confused with the other fish. And some will actually, will actually stop making EODs so that they don't, uh, in deference to a territory holder. So I, I think it's a nice example of, of deference in a fish. If I can mention one other thing in in communication that I think is pretty cool and worth mentioning, it's cooperative hunting, the role of communication in cooperative hunting by grouper fish and moray eels. These are two very different species live on the reef. They're large, they're predatory, and they will hunt together. And a grouper who's hungry, if he or she sees a moray eel, they will signal to them with a body shimmy or a head shake. Essentially, it's an invitation gesture. Says, you know, essentially translates to, "I'm I'm hungry. Want to come hunt with me?" And if the moray eel's in the mood, they swim off together like old friends on a stroll over the reef. And then the reason it works so well is that moray eels can go into narrow crevices in the reef, whereas the grouper cannot. Um, if the moray goes after a fish who's hidden in there. And, and chases the fish and the fish flees out into open water the grouper uh, has an easy go at it and vice versa if the grouper chases the fish into a crevice so studies show that both fishes um do better by hunting cooperatively than they do if they hunt alone and, then, uh, and one more point about communication is that the grouper will also sometimes use the, his or her body as a pointing gesture so if a little fish has swum into a crevice and there's a moray 20 feet away, the grouper will sometimes patiently wait for 20 minutes pointing at this location to try and get the grouper's attention that, hey, there's something worth pursuing in there. Um, and this is called a referential signal, which is very, uh, a very sophisticated kind of communication in any animal.
0: So how about who they are? Do we have any indication that they have what we would call personalities?
2: Yes, we do. Uh, really, we we should expect individual variation in any any organism, given that evolution by natural selection works on variation among individuals. Of course, that doesn't it necessarily imply something at the level of personality. But studies of, uh, of fishes show that they are individual; they have individual personalities that are unique and distinctive. And um, I describe some examples in the book. Um, the fact that Fishes identify each other. They know each other as individuals, um, in studies. In fact, no study of, it's possible that no study of social behavior in these creatures has failed to find individual recognition. I do include an anecdote and, uh, I, I have to admit I've forgotten some of the names I meant to study up on this before our interview, but, um, one of the, a a diver who I consulted, a woman named Christina Zanato, who dives a lot with sharks. She also uh, hangs out with grouper fish, the ones I've already mentioned, and there are three who she knows in a particular area of the reef. And she has names for each of them. One of them is called the Whisperer because the Whisperer is kind of shy and always hangs out right behind her her ear, um, and and doesn't like to be faced face on. Um, another one is very Peanut is large and very bold and uh, happy to take food out of her hand, and uh, and there's another one uh, I think called the Phantom, perhaps because he uh, sustained a a bite from a shark on his head, and it caused him to be unable to change color. uh, Fishes often change color as a way to communicate, and one side of his head is permanently dark, and so he looks a bit like the phantom in The Phantom of the Opera. In any event, she describes all three of these fishes as unique individuals with distinctive personalities, same as being described of sharks by her and others. So if you hang out with them and get close and intimate with them, which, of course, you and I and most people don't get to do, um... But in fact, if you do get intimate with them and spend time with them, you you find that they're that what's just a fish resolves into an individual fish with a distinctive personality.
0: Well, you always find out things that other people don't know. I have a question about your scientific colleagues. Because your book has all kinds of of wonderful endorsements. I know that it's being recommended now out in the larger world. And and certainly others who have put in the academic uh, discipline that you have to learn as much as you have. Many people are just fascinated by what can we find out. And then some of us say, oh, my gosh, we found this out. Now we need to change the way we live. What's the difference? I guess now I'm asking you about human nature instead of animal nature. Why do you have some colleagues who are vegan and some who never want to be?
2: Huh. It's the same as the last question, individual variation. But, of course, there's so much more in that than, than just that because I don't mean to imply that, that we're stuck with who we are and we can't change. Of course, we can change. We are, we are. We have free will, and I don't think we're the only species that has free will but we we celebrate our own free will the fact that we can make personal decisions we can make changes overnight we can decide to stop smoking or to start smoking and we can decide to stop eating fish or animals in general or we can or vice versa and um so i think that's very powerful and it's very empowering as i know you remind audiences we we vote we vote every day with our wallets. And um, one of my primary goals, as I said earlier with this book, is to change attitudes towards fishes. And um, the, the most direct and immediate way that one can help these creatures is to stop buying them and eating them, because that's where most of the harm comes in. Most of the animals we kill, including fishes, is, is to be eaten. And so I do hope people will reflect on their own relationship um, the closest most people come to, to a fish, as with a cow or a pig, is on the end of a fork. And um, I think we could do we could have a better relationship with that.
0: When you went into the field of ethology, were you already interested in animal rights, or were you just a smart, curious young person?
1: The first
2: I, I've cared about animals since my earliest memories, and uh, there was no animal rights movement in the 1960s when I was a little boy. But um, by the time I was a graduate student or a biology student, the animal rights was beginning to the movement was beginning to emerge, and so that was very timely for me because it added meaning to my already well well grounded fascination with animals. I, I, I loved them. I wanted to know more about them, and I was intrigued by them, and I cared about them. And so studying biology was a a fairly easy choice for me. I shouldn't say easy. It it presented its own challenges, but it was definitely something I was very motivated to study. And by the time I was partway through my studies, um, I was beginning to realize that working to help animals and protect them uh, was a, a calling for me.
0: Well, you do it beautifully, and your books are fabulous, including this one. So now I want to get a little bit more into the R-rated questions. Do fishes have sex lives?
2: I claim they do. They they certainly uh, have a lot of the trappings of, of sex lives. They pair off. Some species mate for life with the same partner. Some are promiscuous and you've got everything in between. You also have sex change without expensive surgery where fishes can become uh, go from male to female depending on circumstances and how helpful they might be in their situation. Or in some cases, vice versa. You also have uh, hermaphrodites where uh, an individual fish can function as both sexes at once. So, I mean, if that's kinky, uh, then they certainly qualify. You have elaborate courtship behaviors. And uh, many fishes, you know, most people think of them as sort of just dropping their eggs or sperm into the water to combine. First of all, I don't see why that necessarily detracts from the the sex lives of fishes. But um, many species are actually, they do have, um, let's just say, penetrative sex with with sex organs that are a little bit more like what's familiar to us. And... um, there's even some really, there's some very diverse, bizarre reproductive strategies. I guess partly because they're so diverse and they've been evolving in, in their habitats for so long. They've, uh, they've risen to an uh, immense diversity of, uh, of tactics of, of getting along and, and, and living successful lives. Um, there's a one fish actually who has somehow, through evolutionary time, evolved a, a symbiotic relationship with a clam. Where the fish actually lays the, the female has a long ovipositor about as long as her body. it's like a, a flexible straw that she inserts into the siphon, which is the uh, water pump of the of the clam and lays her eggs through there and the clam doesn't seem to object, and the clam benefits by attaching its own its own young to the to the little baby fishes when they hatch out of the eggs and they come out a few weeks later. So everybody seems to benefit from that bizarre sort of sexual or reproductive relationship
0: so the more fascinating all this is i think humans many humans would have a great excuse to say okay see look they're just so different i mean they can change gender at will how can i possibly relate to to a a group of beings who are so alien how can we
2: it is an ironic question to me because I, what they're, they're different, their alienness, they're, they're, they have the way that they're different is what's so alluring and beautiful about them to me. And I think if we if we put what they can do in the context of where they live and how they evolved, it it, it becomes it, it makes sense and and it's a way to empathize with them more. For instance, I think one of the reasons why we tend to be uh, a bit dismissive of fishes and why it's still common that people think they can't feel pain and this sort of thing is that they are they don't uh, they don't shout when you pull them out of the water and they don't blink uh, they don't they may flop around and that ought to drive some empathy but but you know if you've evolved in an aquatic environment you don't have to have eyelids you don't have to blink because your eyes are constantly washed in water and uh, similarly uh, although fishes make a lot of sounds underwater those sounds don't propagate very well above. Uh, in, in the air. Let me just give one uh, one example of how of how fish see the world a bit like we do, you know, in, in sort, of, sort of the opposite thing in how, ways that they're similar to us. Uh, I talk about optical illusions where you can have uh, the, the muller liar illusion where you have two straight lines of the same length. But well, then depending on what direction the arrows are pointing on the end of those lines, you may have seen these in psychology textbooks. Well, depending on the direction of the arrows, one line looks much longer than the other, and you can train fishes to choose a, to choose the longer line of two lines, and then you give them that illusion, and they will choose the same one that we choose, even though the two lines are the same length. There's other illusions, and I presented a couple of examples uh, in my book, and they also fall for those illusions in the same way that we do. And you know, to me, that's that's kind of uh, it's kind of disarming and charming. It, it suggests they they see the world as we do, and it suggests they have beliefs that they can. And those beliefs are fallible. Uh, if that isn't the human condition, I don't know what is. And so while I don't think we need to be arguing that fishes or any other animal are just like little humans, that they're clearly not, and, and that's not the point. I think, I think it, the, the differences are beautiful, but it's also touching when we see, realize that they also can perceive the world in ways similar to the way we do.
0: Mm. Well, the publisher who chose your book cover... You may have had some input there. You always have great covers, by the way. But the fish on the cover of this book is one of those who kind of looks like us. (laughs) I know most fish don't. This little fish is so captivating. What kind of fish am I looking at?
2: It's a porcupine fish. They're in the pufferfish family. And uh, it's quite a diverse group. And, yeah, part of what's captivating about them, quite aside from their cute, uh, round, rotund shape, is that the eyes are placed at the front of the head. Yes. The eyes are huge. They swivel in their sockets, as do pretty much all fishes' eyes, even though we often overlook that. Um, so they have that kind of binocular vision. They also have a cute little smiley mouth um, and very cute fins. And um, they're, they're just very... They're, very, they're they're fish we can relate with a little easier perhaps, and that's one of the reasons why we wanted them on the cover. By the way, Victoria, I can tell you the, the animals sell the, sell the books. I mean, they they are so um, photogenic, and so all my books get to have animals on them because that's what I write about. So <laughs> have nice book covers. Incidentally, yeah. there was a there was a viral video recently of, of two pufferfish, close relatives of this one, two fishes who were one of whom was caught in a net, and oh. the snorkelers filmed. Uh, filmed this the rescue of this fish while this guy used a broken bottle to cut the net took him a couple of minutes and this other fish of the same species was sort of swimming next to it like a vigil and hung right next to this one who was trapped until uh, the animal was released and then they both swam off together and um you know it shows to me The level of attachment that a fish can have and the level of loyalty that that fish would stick with the companion, despite the scary two-legged monster with a piece of broken glass coming along and another one with a camera. It really uh, was widely watched, and it it presents fishes in a a different light than we often think of them as being.
0: Mm, The power of video. Well, just before the show, my husband had sent me a, a link to a story about a woman in Canada who I I guess purchased a a lobster at a store and found out where he came from and took him back to the sea. Did you see this?
2: I didn't see that. It
0: it was just, I thought, oh, my goodness, five minutes before talking with Jonathan Balcom, a, a rescue story. So let's talk about fish who come in shells. A lot of people say, oh, well, they're not vertebrates. They they don't really count. Is there any evidence of sentience and uh, cognitive ability in, in non-vertebrate fishes?
2: I, I, I didn't actually write about them in this book, but as, a, as somebody who thinks and reads a lot about animal sentience, of course, the, the question of vertebrate sentience is a really important one and an intriguing one, and, and it's an exciting, interesting time. It's definitely some doubts now beginning to arise among scientists who tend to be the most conservative on questions like this. Doubts about whether insects, uh, whether lobsters and crayfish and crabs and whether octopuses especially and, sh- and squid, cephalopod molluscs, are sentient or not. And Really, the jury is really beginning to rule on the side of the invertebrates in a lot of cases. There's, there's growing and now fairly wide acceptance that uh, cephalopods, octopuses, and squids are sentient. There's evidence that they have personality. Some are shyer than others. Some are more quick to have a temper. These animals can There's evidence they can hold a grudge that they recognize individuals, including us. Um, they are able to walk on some of their arms and they... They do cool things, and you can watch YouTube videos about that tool use. And just remarkable. The, stu- the kind of stuff we, we would have just dismissed as being a part of most vertebrate animals' lives, never mind an invertebrate. So, so things are really changing. There are some compelling studies of shellfish uh, or certainly cr- uh, crustaceans, um, such as crabs and prawns, showing that if, if part of their body is injured, they, will, uh, they may favor that part. Um, they will um, not use it as much, and they. i uh, think. <laughs> there's there's a, there's one study I, I should just describe briefly of hermit crabs. These are the ones who climb into the shells, uh, discarded shells from mollusks. And in one study, I, I'm not necessarily uh, advocating these studies, but uh, they they are revealing. And one study, they the scientists, the meddling scientists cleverly hooked up some electric wires to to some of these shells so they could deliver a mild electric shock to, through the shell. And then they offered two empty shells to a hermit crab, and they found which one the hermit crab preferred. And then if that one had an electric shock in it, and they gave it a little shock, the crab, the crab would quickly exit. And then when presented again with those choice of two crab two shells, the crabs typically would start to move towards the preferred one and then realize uh, they would hesitate, and then go to the other one presumably because they remembered that it, it had a, a punishment uh, an electric shock so so studies like that are being done on invertebrates just the fact that scientists are asking questions like that it indicates that there's there's interest in that area and there's doubt as to whether these animals are insentient, that, that there's that there's belief, a rising belief that they actually can feel pain and they can they can feel pain i would argue they can also feel pleasure
0: yes Now, back to your book, we always think that fishes just lay eggs and go off somewhere and there's no relationship between parent and offspring. Is that true?
2: Sometimes yes, sometimes not. Once again, over 30,000 different species, you have a huge diversity of relationships and it includes parental care. Parental care is... uh, Exist in about one quarter of all fish species. Do the math. You're talking about 8,000 different kinds of fish that have parental care of one kind or another. Sometimes it's as simple as guarding the eggs, very important task. But in other cases, it's looking after the young for days or weeks after they are born or hatched. Some fishes are born hatched from eggs, some are born live born, if you like. There's, uh, one of the most sophisticated examples is the mouth brooders, which are mostly found in African lakes, these large lakes, Lake Malawi, Lake Victoria. And these the cichlid fishes have evolved into huge diversity there. There's hundreds of different species, and they are known for being mouth brooders, which is a, a clever way of protecting your babies. You have a big mouth, and you just suck them in and hold them in your mouth. When there's danger nearby, And these fish will signal to their young, hey, you know," by, by opening their mouth or some other body signal, the young will quickly swim over and get get sort of inhaled by the parent, and then it looks a little bit like vomiting in reverse. <laughs> and then, uh, if the coast is clear, the parent will let them out again. There's some real um, selflessness built into this as well, and because uh, some because uh, and altruism, because the the fish can't eat the parent fish can't eat when the young are in the mouth, and uh, male daddy fish, which are usually the ones who are doing this will go sometimes for weeks without feeding themselves um, while they're looking after their young. So it's a very, in some cases, very noble self
3: behavior.
0: Amazing. I think if for 60 seconds humankind understood exactly what's going on with everybody else, it would be the biggest revolution this planet has ever seen. So, Jonathan... What do you want people who read this book to take away?
2: A heightened appreciation and respect for our underwater cousins, as the subtitle says. We've we've so missed the boat on this group of animals and now in the last few decades we've 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 really it's it's paradoxical because we're exploiting fishes at a higher rate than in any time in our history but our knowledge and awareness of them is also higher. And that's a combination of scientific curiosity and willingness to ask the questions and technology that now allows us to get into their realms and spend hours, sometimes longer. You can go online now, explore.com, and you can watch 24-7 underwater cameras that are filming fish habitats, and you can see what's going on in the wild. To me, that's that's better than any aquarium can give you. So um, we, we are at a point now where we're able to learn and see about their lives, lives that used to be obscure to us. And so, my hope is that people will take that information and um, have a more nuanced and appreciative relationship to these creatures who have every right to be on the planet as we do.
0: Mm. Well, certainly, many, many will, because you're not only coming out with this book in June in English, but you've already got foreign translations going in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. So do check out the book, What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins by Jonathan Balcombe. You can also go to Jonathan's website, Jonathan Balcombe, B-A-L-C-O-M-B-E dot com. He's Jonathan Balcombe on Facebook. I will put all this on the show notes at mainstreetvegan.net. And if you would like a monthly newsletter about fishes, Send an email to whatafishknows at hotmail.com. Finally, tell us a fish story either that's your own or that you got for the book and you just love to pieces.
2: (laughs) That's a great question. I I, I worked, I I took pains to make sure this book wasn't just a science because science can reach our brains, but. To reach our hearts often requires stories and, um, you know, there's so many I could choose from. I'll just choose a very brief one. A woman in Florida wrote to me about her relationship with a a fish named Jasper. This is a discus fish, very popular among aquarium enthusiasts. They're, They're known to be beautiful colors and they come in a variety of different colors. Um, reds to blues, etc. Jasper was a, a blue. I think Jasper may actually be a blue-colored gem, but in any event, Jasper was blue. And uh, this woman had Jasper for many years, eight or nine years, I think. And when she'd come home from work, she Jasper would swim to the end of the tank where she was, and you'd want to be next to her, and they would hang out and look at each other, and uh, they would play games where sort of she would move things or move her fingers, and Jasper would chase. And then at the end of their game playing, she would cup her hands under the water, and Jasper would swim into the cup, and she would, with her thumb, she would gently stroke Jasper. And once again, I have to point to my favorite website, YouTube, and say that, you know, you can look this stuff up, and you can watch people stroking fishes. You can watch fishes swimming into people's hands. You can watch people even lifting the fish out of the water, and the fish is completely trusting, and then tossing the fish or putting the fish back, and the fish swims back into the hands. It's really touching to see that. And that's the kind of relationship that Karen had with Jasper, and uh, she mourned his loss, of course, because you get attachment. You get attachment there, and people do get attached to individual fishes. So that's just one of many accounts that I've, I've received, individual fishes having relationships with individual humans.
0: Ah, uh, So read the book so that you can see all the rest of the stories and the science and all the facts. You can also run into Jonathan this summer, launching the book June 20th in Washington, D.C. at Bus Boys and Poets. He'll be at Vegetarian Summerfest in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and the Farm Sanctuary Hoedown in Watkins Glen, New York. And I'll see you at both of those places. So maybe some of you listeners can... Join us around the country as well. If not, you can certainly get the point from the book, What a Fish Knows. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for having Main Street Vegan in their stable of wonderful programming. Next week, we will be back with... fascination we're going to have ruby roth with her fabulous new kids cookbook and we'll have Lorena muki who does humane education she takes these ideas into middle schools and high schools and if you don't think that takes a lot of nerve well try it in the meantime god bless you eat your veggies
1: 1 p.m. Eastern, on Affirmative Prayer, activating the power of yes. Only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. It's been said that the way to build a peaceful world is one person at a time. Think about it. Haven't we all been in situations where one person's attitude, his or her state of mind and way of being, had a profound effect on everyone in the group. We may have seen times when the effect was negative, caused by gossip or backbiting. But we've all seen times where one person changed an environment in a positive way. By maintaining a friendly attitude of goodwill toward everyone, he or she gradually influenced more and more members of the group to do the same. Before long, the positive attitude became the norm. Peace began with one person. I look for opportunities to be that person. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. If I were a is life working for you would it be okay with you if life got easier simpler yet more meaningful and vibrant join certified life coach carla mcclellan tuesday afternoons for vibrant living each week coach carla and her guests will share strategies and solutions designed to make your life more vibrant is there something in your life you'd like help with a dream you'd like to achieve a relationship you'd like to improve Call into the show toll-free for Coaching with Carla. That's Vibrant Living, Life Coaching with Carla, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Central on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
2: What if
0: we're all meant to do what we secretly dream?